Germany's beleaguered defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD Hi, this is Isaac. Hi, it's Michelle. Welcome back to Spaßbremse. We're talking about something a bit different today than our usual realm um, and about a period much earlier than we usually discuss, actually. Today, we are talking about the witch trials of the 16th and 17th centuries. Yes, I know. Coming a bit out of left field here, maybe. Uh, Unless you're paying close attention, um, perhaps. I mean, we have plugged this episode a number of times over the past (laughs) couple months. This was initially supposed to come out around Halloween, um, but, you know, life got in the way. But then we we remembered that Germans don't celebrate Halloween and it would be wrong of us to place our time continuum on them. And so we saved it for uh, the season, the the fifth season season they call it which is like fastnacht or fasching or which for this episode we're calling witchy site witchy site there's no ted yes. to like edit us so you're <laughs> having a really <laughs> grand old time <laughs> yeah we're gonna have fun yeah because while most americans are probably most familiar with the salem witch trials uh which is when between 1692 and 1693 more than 200 people were accused of witchcraft 30 were found guilty and 19 eventually executed. In Europe, uh, many, many, many more witch trials actually took place in the decades uh, before those trials in Salem. Um, By some estimates, uh, between 1560 and 1670, more than 40,000 people were executed for witchcraft uh, in Europe. Uh, And other estimates approach the number 100,000. Obviously, it's difficult to sort of have exact statistics about this kind of thing. Um, And most of these trials took place in the Holy Roman Empire, Uh, many of these towns where these trials took place are now part of Germany. Uh, So some famous ones uh, happened in cities like Trier, Fulda, Bamberg, and Würzburg in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Uh, And yeah, it's just kind of almost hard to overstate or impossible to overstate like kind of the magnitude of these things. Like they kind of make the Salem witch trials look like child's Child's play. Yeah. I mean, there were literal children on trial, and so it's... Right. But, yeah, um, yeah, I've been to, like, the Salem Witch Memorial and stuff, and I believe there are 13 people, or, like, 17, somewhere in that ballpark. So we're talking orders of magnitude. Yeah, I was surprised about about that, about those numbers. Um, yeah. And like we said, the connection here, uh, I'm posting this episode now, is because it's witchy side in Germany, and maybe I guess should take it back a second and explain what that even means, <laughs> um, because it's not what this episode is actually about. But we're just um, connecting the dots to like carnival, which is what in German is called Fasching or Fastnacht, and happens in February. So it actually marks like the start of Lent. But all that may be for another time. 
yeah, we are going to get into uh, in a minute a bit of um, a bit of background about Fasching and uh, then also a different sort of witchy festival which, which happens at the end of April. Um, yeah, we're going to get into that in a second and, and sort of talk about the, the role of witches in these festivals. But I... Um, I personally never actually had any experience with fashion and I always find it a little bit perplexing, honestly. Um, but I know that Michelle, you have had some personal experience. Can you tell me about your, your fashion story? Yeah. My fashion experience, I guess you could also say slight trauma as a little girl. I was, um, growing up, and my parents, my parents build it as like Halloween, and so we were dressed up and like go to going to this parade in the center of town. And um, there's lots of confetti, and there's all of these. What I found out later are mostly men dressed in like knee-high stripy socks and like weird clogs and wooden masks that are all gnarly and like mm-hmm. have kind of the hooked nose thing going on and and like crazy gray hair and they're all dressed in like coordinating colors depending on what village they're coming from and basically the childhood experience of that was like they would steal people out of the crowd and like put them in a confetti machine oh my god all the while they're like throwing like candy everywhere so it was just like a very overwhelming experience and um there was definitely a bit of terror and fear involved because it was nothing like the Halloween I knew, which is very pared down and um, trick-or-treat, give-and-take. It's a bit different. Um, Come to find out that these, like, parades with... It's not actually just witches. They're also, like, you could be, like, a forest spirit or, like, a a village near me does, like, raspberry spirits. The the him the himbergeist <laughs> yeah, and like these days it's like people our age these days who are in these um yeah. clubs, and like I have some friends uh, who I went to school with who are in them, and so I see the occasional video of like the like techno that they're playing at the <laughs> parade to psych themselves up. It it seems like it's it's a drinking festival, right? Mm-hmm. To kind of sum it up, the a uh, local describes this like specifically southern german fashion which is the one i'm familiar with like obviously there are very regional differences so we should say like this does not apply to even like in in um in the rhineland they it's something completely different but in the specific like southern german aspect of this um the article quotes like their ancestors were terrified of the wild, especially the dark forests that covered considerable parts of the land. These people were not only afraid of wild animals savaging them, but they also feared the very woods themselves as places of dark magic and curses. This is because it was very easy to get lost in the undergrowth and find oneself at the mercy of the elements. So here you see this connection between like the seasons and a very real like need to survive and also kind of this um Aberglaube, uh superstition. Yeah, no, I mean I find it really interesting that these kind of like yeah, very pagan seeming superstitions have like survived in these yeah, quite like Christian um 
yeah festivals and um yeah it's it's not only this this fashing or, or carnival in february that kind of embraces this slight witchiness um there's also at the end of, of april in some parts of germany they celebrate uh, a festival called walpurgisnacht um or like Wal walpurg's night um which refers to a, a medieval saint um i think it's, it's commonly misconstrued or, or, or uh yeah the common misconception is that walpurgis is like the witch but no it's actually a medieval saint walpurga who has a reputation for putting an end to pagan sorcery um and so the night is also sometimes known as hexenbrennen or the the burning of witches i suppose because yeah this medieval saint is puts an end to pagan sorcery by the burning of, of witches. So, I mean, yeah, it, as you can see, it kind of all ties to this, uh, back to this kind of witch trial theme that we'll be getting into in the the interview later. Um, but yeah, this is a, another sort of excerpt from a, a different article about uh, the Walpurgisnacht, and we'll include a link to both these articles in the show notes. Um, but they write that uh, despite the best efforts of the Catholic Church to put an end to pagan belief throughout the Holy Roman Empire during the Middle Ages, there were still many aspects of folk beliefs that manifested themselves, from herbalism to rituals designed to ensure a good harvest. This was especially true in the more wild, remote parts, such as the Hartz Mountains in the northern half of modern Germany. And over the course of the 16th and 17th century, this reputation as a bastion of pagan superstition, coupled with the growing hysteria around witchcraft, led many to believe that the Brocken, the highest peak in the Hartz Mountains, was the scene of the witch's Sabbath. These were allegedly wild and orgiastic con convocations where gathered witches would meet with Satan and plot all sorts of trouble over the coming years. And so in order to keep witches away and avoid their curses, uh, this Walpurgisnacht, I guess, was developed where local villagers would come together and light bonfires, a throwback to older beliefs of the warding power of flame. It was a night to stay within the light and heat of the flames for fear of attracting malign attention. So yeah, that's towards the end of, of April. So from here until April, you know, we're, we're really in this. We're celebrating. Site. I'm celebrating. We're celebrating. Um, yeah. And yeah, in South Germany too, like where I grew up for a bit, they also had this aspect of it, but I believe they used, which just goes to show how like convoluted these different like influences, uh, how convoluted this gets. Um, but they would do like a burning of a witch, which was just this like straw figure to kick off the season. Mm. Like I believe even in January. So it's like... Oh, wow hyper regional i would say yeah um yeah 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 no it's really interesting and we'll, we'll sort of probably get into more about these particular festivals in some other episode at some point at some point someday <laughs> um but i think to bring it back to our true topic of the day and not just the connections to present day i think what gets obscured in all of these festivities and the different um, traditions and celebrating them is the fact that during this time period that we are going to be talking about the 16th and 17th century is that like real people it, a huge number of real people like were persecuted and killed you know Dr. Kunin gets into this in the uh, interview but it was mostly women but actually even like men were put on trial and mm -hmm. um, killed as well. So I think 
yeah, it's just going to be really interesting to talk about, like, the experience of these persecutions, and thankfully Isaac found an expert on the subject. Yeah, yeah, so I, I talked to uh, Dr. Laura Kunin, who is a senior lecturer in early modern history at the University of Sussex, uh, and yeah, this is sort of her, her specialty. So in 2018, she published uh, the book Imagining the Witch, Emotions, Gender, and Selfhood in Early Modern Germany. Um, and yeah, her, her research is really interesting because she really kind of dives deep into the actual like historical evidence uh, and materials that surround these trials. And in particular, she looks at the lengthy records um, from the witch trials in the Duchy of Württemberg, which is today part of Baden-Württemberg. Um, and she looks at the, these records, which includes, you know, testimonials from people who were put on trial, as well as people who knew them, um, to understand sort of how the people accused of witchcraft resisted these accusations. Uh, and in particular, she's interested in how the process of these trials sort of shaped our, our current understandings of emotions, gender, and selfhood. So essentially, you know, what, what it means to be a, a person in the world. So yeah, we will, you know, cut to the interview now, uh, and then after the interview, Michelle and I will be back to share some of our reflections. Yeah. All right, let's go. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Spaßbremse. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Laura Kunin, who is a senior lecturer of early modern history at the University of Sussex. Welcome, Laura Kunin. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me to talk on your podcast. Thank you. So, among other things, your research has focused on the witch trials of early modern Germany, uh, which is a period much earlier than what we usually discuss on Spaßbremse. I think we generally sort of stick to, I think, mostly like 20th century history, I guess, and even sometimes more recent events in uh, German social and political history. Um, but this sort of period of the, the witch trials um, and witch persecutions is a moment that I'm personally quite fascinated about, um, and I think it will be interesting for our listeners to you know, learn a bit about what was happening in the territories which now comprise Germany, um, you know, much earlier than, than what we're used to talking about. Um, and now in particular, you've written about the gendering of witchcraft and the development of ideas uh, about the self uh, during this period, including your book, which was published in 2018 called Imagining the Witch, Emotions, Gender and Selfhood in Early Modern Germany in which you analyze the witch trial records of the Duchy of Württemberg, now, of course, part of the state of Baden-Württemberg in southern Germany. Um, but, but before we get any further, um, I would like us to just begin with maybe some context. Uh, so can you tell me, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about the early modern witch trials in Germany? What exactly are we, are we dealing with here? Okay, yes. So, um, well... As, as you rightly say, this is um, an early modern phenomenon. This is not a modern, well, I mean, there are witch trials, I guess, in the modern times as well. But in the um, European context, this um, occurred in the 16th and 17th centuries. So the peak of the witch craze was between 1580 and 1630. And the Holy Roman Empire was the heartland of the witch craze. So we can only work with estimates of numbers, but we think that there were um, around 100,000 trials in Europe and almost half of which occurred in Germany, in the Holy Roman Empire. Mm. Um, and about half of those trials ended in execution. 
So it really is um, a hotspot for the witch trials. Um, and there's been a lot of interesting work done because there are so many sources, there's so many rich sources. Yeah. And I think sort of the next, uh, you know, next question I want to ask is about, you know, what we're actually talking about when we're talking about the witch during this period. You know, one thing that I found really interesting in, in reading some of your book and listening to some other interviews you've given is how the idea of the witch was, you know, sort of hard to pin down, I guess, and that it was sort of being developed, uh, you know, through these, through these trials and persecutions. So can you tell me, I guess, yeah, what was, what was the witch in this period and why is that so, so hard to pin down? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> that's kind of, um, I think, what early modern people grappled with and what, what historians also grapple with. And actually, I gave a lecture yesterday to my students on the witch trials, early modern witch trials. And I always say, OK, so what do you think of when you think of the witch? And everyone always says a woman. Um, mm -hmm. They usually say an old woman on the margins of society, old poor woman, um, you know, kind of might have a hooked nose or sort of hunched back, that kind of thing. Um, no one ever says a man, <laughs> even though, um, we could talk about this later, but even though around 25% of trials were of men in the Holy Roman mm -hmm. Empire. Um, so there was, you know, a significant variation. But I think what's so interesting is that we still, in contemporary culture, have such a clear stereotype of the witch. And I think we assume, therefore, that everyone knew exactly what they were looking for. You know, mm -hmm. the term witch craze is talked a lot about, and therefore I think people assume that people are hunting witches left, right and centre, and that's an inevitable road to the stake, um, and there's a very clear sense of what they're looking for. And what I was interested in was to actually look at the ambiguity of the figure of the witch. I think we know there's some ambiguity because almost half of all the witch trials don't end in execution, so it's mm -hmm. not an inevitable road to the stake. That's not to say they're not being punished in other ways or ostracised or potentially even killed by their community, but it's not an inevitable road to the stake. And I think also what was interesting is that there's often, in some areas, um, quite a lot of confusion or uncertainty about what the witch is and what they're able to do. So we know, for instance, that some legal codes focus on maleficium, which is harmful magic, and some legal codes focus not on harmful magic, but on the pact with the devil. So already you see a problem there. You know, are they looking for people practicing witchcraft? Are they looking for people who um, have a pact with the devil? And as soon as you go into that route, how on earth do you prove that someone has a pact with the devil? Um, mm -hmm. Witches are the most heinous of criminals, they are committing a secretive crime um, and the only real clear proof is confession. Mm. So then the question is, well, if they're not willing to confess, how do we know if they're a witch? So what I was interested in is looking um, at exactly those trials where it does seem quite ambiguous, where the magistrates aren't totally sure if the person on trial is a witch, where witnesses, even sometimes the accuser, says, well, actually, only they would know if they were a witch. Mm. Um, and I think part of that is because we have the stereotypes of the witch, you know, the sort of old woman, but in reality, almost anyone could be accused of witchcraft. Men, mm -hmm. younger women, married women, children even. And then that, that really makes the whole crime very difficult to grapple with. And I think we'll get into a bit of these sort of, 
you know reasons why uh, certain people were you know accused of, of witchcraft uh, in a little bit and and yeah sort of the, the the gender differences and the fact that you know men were accused of witchcraft as you said um, but before we get into that you know you your sort of area that you were looking at is the Duchy of Württemberg um, and of course there were uh, you know witch trials and witch persecutions happening in other parts of uh, the Holy Roman Empire as well. I think the most famous or the ones that I had been sort of most familiar with were like in Bamberg and Würzburg and and these sort of areas. And can you so can you tell me you know what was it about sort of this place and this period and this time that sort of was fueling this kind of like witch craze? Like why were people on the lookout for for witchcraft. Well, I think you're completely right. So most people, when they think of um, persecution hotspots, would maybe think of the Catholic prince bishoprics. So you've got Eichstätt, Bamberg, um, Würzburg, as you said, all of those. And I I did actually look at um, some of those places for my master's thesis, but then my questions shifted, and I was less interested in these areas of mass panic, partly because the trials are much more formulaic because, you know, they know what they're looking for. This kind of goes back to your previous question. In areas of mass panic, they have a very clear stereotype and a very clear um, idea of what they want the confession to be. So there's leading questions, and the trials tend to be quite formulaic. Um, In the Lutheran Duchy of Württemberg, where I look, it's actually an area of low persecution. So it's the largest territory in southwestern Germany. It's um, around 300,000 to 450,000 inhabitants. Such a large spectrum of number because of the Thirty Years' War, so a lot of people get killed then. Um, but it's you know a very large territory, and out of the 300,000 to 450,000 inhabitants, we only have around 350 witch trials. Mm. So it is not um, the case like Bamberg, where... Um, you know, you have a a thousand cases in a few years. This is Mm. um, an area of low persecution. And I think um, what's interesting, so around 600 people were investigated, um, accused and imprisoned. We have 350 formal witch trials um, and about 197 end in execution. So Mm. it's, it's interesting for me because I was interested in thinking about how is a criminal construction of the which created in the trial process. Mm-hmm. And these trials allow me as a historian to look at those questions because um, they're just not sure. <laughs> they just mm-hmm. don't know what they're looking for when they're persecuting witches. Um, and so they're often very long, very detailed. They get a lot of witness statements. Um, they sometimes get expert opinions. They bring in um, you know, religious experts as well. And so these are... I wouldn't say completely isolated, but it's possible that the magistrate on duty had never seen a witch trial before. You know, Mm. these are all in district courts and there's lots of different districts in the uh, territory. So these are not seasoned witch hunters. These are people who are being confronted with a question of witchcraft, maybe for the first or second or third time. And Mm. so for that reason, they're very, very lengthy trial records. um, And they often just don't end with a clear verdict. And so... It was partly using these records that made my questions shift. I wasn't so interested in the why of persecution, but more about the people who then ended up being put on trial. Right. And so, yeah, we can get into that maybe a bit now, Um, you know, because I think 
for me when I first started reading some of your work and, um, you know, the, these ideas of, of selfhood and, you know, approaching emotions from this sort of like historical perspective was a bit kind of new to me and seemed, um, you know, you often think of these things as kind of, I guess, static and, and sort of unchanging, perhaps. I mean, if you're not thinking critically about the histories of them. Um, so if you can maybe explain, you know, what do you mean about uh, sort of, I guess, when you're referring to like the, the history of emotions and ideas about selfhood in this period? And like, what were the things that, uh, I guess, kind of uh, came up during your investigations into these, uh, these witch trial records? Okay, well, no, that's a, that's a great question. So um, obviously, many of your listeners might not know that much about the history of witch trials. What I will say is there are a lot of books. There are a lot and lots of books. There's a lot of scholarship. Um, and there's some really brilliant work on um, the European witch trials, and particularly the German witch trials, so Lyndall Roper, Eric Middelfort, Wolfgang Beringer, to name a few, have really shown us very well um, why witches were persecuted in the early modern period, specifically what's happening in Germany. Um, you know, it's a heady combination of religious turmoil, dealing with misfortune and bad weather, which I'm looking at right now, <laughs> um, neighbourly antagonisms, um, lack of centralised judicial control, that was really key in Germany because it was so decentralised, and deep rigid fears um, about fertility and fecundity. Um, so in that sense, I felt like many of the questions of why um, witch hunting occurred had already been answered. So I wanted to think about how we could use these really fascinating sources, particularly for early modernists, because a lot of people who are caught up in witch trials would have no other historical record. They usually can't write or read, you know, so we're not, mm. we're not finding wonderful self-narratives from these people. Um, so I thought, well, okay, but what does it actually mean to ordinary people to be called a witch? Um, how did people make sense of the accusations made against them? Um, and I was fascinated by how those put on trial for witchcraft, both men as well as women, could find strategies to defend themselves against this charge. Um, and so for me, it was a lot about reading for resistance. How did people try and mm -hmm. resist this accusation of witchcraft? And how did they try and eke out a narrative of themselves as good as opposed to evil? Um, so this is where, as I said before, I, I became really um, drawn to these very complex trials where the identity of the witch is heavily contested. It's being fought about from both sides, also from the witnesses, um, mm -hmm. and where you can really see the criminal or the attempt to construct um, sort of a criminal identity of the witch and how there's a lot of back and forth with that as well, you know, torture as well, but people recanting their earlier confessions. Um, so I think that's how I became interested in this idea of who is being accused of the witch and how can we actually get a sense of how they made sense of this. I think the, the um, I wouldn't say the problem, but the focus of the why of persecutions tend to be almost structural, you know, what's happening that allows witch hunts to take place. Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, why did certain people believe they were witch? Also really interesting. But I was just thinking, well, but what, what does it mean to all those people who actually say, no, I'm not a witch. <laughs> I don't want mm -hmm. to be accused of witchcraft. Um, and I hadn't really seen many histories trying to detail that. Um, in terms of selfhood, if you want me to talk a bit about that, 
I mean, mm-hmm. um, I think that's a very complex term. Um, I talk about that a lot in my book. I think what I try to say is um, that these sources can be really interesting in getting a glimpse onto people's emotions and subjectivities. They're mm-hmm. not an unmediated direct lens to a person's past self. I actually don't believe that any source gives you a direct lens onto what someone is feeling or thinking, but particularly Mm -hmm. trial records. I mean, they're so mediated. Um, You know, they're written in the third person. Um, You know, sometimes we just see the summary, all those kinds of problems. Um, But what I do think is that um, we can use these sources as a way of seeing how people mediate on the questions of who are you, are you a witch? Are you evil? Are you good? In a very particular context. And these are mm-hmm. questions that they may have never been asked before. And we certainly mm-hmm. don't have any written records of them being asked these kinds of questions about their identity. So it's not, I'm not saying we know exactly who this person is in all these ways of their, you know, unchanging selfhood. But I do think we can, in the trial process, have a sense of um, how people grappled with these questions about their identity and in this very specific context get some sense of their emotions, their subjectivities um, and their sense of agency. Yeah, that, that idea that you know this was maybe one of the first or only opportunities they had to really kind of think about or mediate on like what it means to be a good person and to seriously reflect on their their own sort of conscience. Like, yeah, I find that really, really fascinating. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, maybe you feel like you've already sort of addressed this to the extent that you can, but like, what are some sort of examples of like, of like ways that they did this? Like, what are some examples of ways that they would have articulated um, sort of their, their selfhood, you know, on, on the stand while they were on trial? They do actually sometimes talk about their self. I think what was interesting was um, trying to really be attuned to their language and recurring words and motifs. Um, So when I went into this project many years ago, when I was a PhD student, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to write a chapter on the devil. That's what I'm going to do. And in this particular territory, I was just rather surprised that they didn't talk about the devil all that much. What I saw was constant references to their conscience, their conscience and their mind. Um, And this was completely unexpected. So I guess I tried to follow their cues a little bit um, and think about what are the what are the words that they're using a lot? What are the idioms that they're using? How are they trying to construct um, a sense of their own self? Um, I tried not to kind of project too much of what I expected from them onto them, but Mm -hmm. really was trying to be led Um, by their own voices. And I think um, I've written a book or co-edited a book on emotions in the history of witchcraft with Michael Osling, um, who's also a really brilliant um, historian. And he's written something really nice, so I thought I would read that out. But um, Mm -hmm. I I follow uh, Michael's work and uh, the work of historians like Lyndall Roper. She uses psychoanalysis in her work. I've tried not to do that, but Rather, just think about how we can read these records for a glimpse, just a glimpse onto people's emotions and subjectivities. And just even saying that is already quite controversial. Many German Mm. historians would say, no, you cannot read witch trials to look at these questions. 
you can never ever get a voice of the accused. You might be able to get a voice of the interrogator, but never mm. the voice of the accused. So already what I'm saying is a little bit controversial, particularly in the German-speaking world. Um, mm. But Lendl Roper, Michael Osley, myself, Malcolm Gaskell, who's another historian, um, he said recently that in reading these sources, we hear the expressions of feeling made by humble people. So um, Michael and I talk about this in our introduction, but we say, well, the temptation, indeed the duty to heed such expressions is very strong indeed, but so is the responsibility to hear them right, to avoid mistaking the ventriloquized voices of torturers, magistrates and demonologists for the authentic expression of the people. So the point is we have to tread with trepidation and with care. Um, so to listen with responsibility, um, but also to do justice to the people by carefully listening to what they had to say. Um, right. And the idea is, um, and I talk about this more in my book, but that you don't just get to a person by subtracting discourse and seeing what's left over, mm -hmm. but really to try and see the ways in which people traverse cultural discourses um, and, you know, use particular motifs, convention to reveal parts of themselves. Another thing that I found sort of interesting is that, you know, as people were, uh, I guess, trying to, to defend themselves against these accusations, you, you've said that sometimes people actually would defend themselves by resisting the label of witch, but other times they might have actually sort of em embraced this term. Like there are examples of this as well. Why, why would that have been sort of a, a strategy that people might have used? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it, to know how much of these strategies are conscious or unconscious. Um, you know, we do see, you know, if it's a very long trial process, some of them take years, uh, well, at least months, but sometimes even years. You know, you do get a sense of, okay, people are trying different things out, um, mm -hmm. whether that's particularly, you know, yeah, consciously done or slightly subconscious or unconscious. Occasionally, you do have people who say, no, I'm a witch. I mean, I have uh, one case of an old widow who comes to the attention of the authorities um, and she doesn't, she doesn't say that she's a witch, but she says that the devil used her sins and that mm. she belonged under the gallows and yes, one should burn her. Um, mm. And initially she says, no, I'm not a witch. And then she does eventually say, no, I am a witch. And so she's, I think, 74 years old. And she seems to be really consumed with her past sins. She's constantly talking about her despair. And despair mm. is seen as an awful emotion in the early modern period because it, it suggests that you don't believe in the power of God's redemption, you know, mm. that you've stopped believing. Um, so despair is often linked with suicide. Um, and so she's clearly despairing. She thinks that the devil is using her sins. And she she makes some astounding confessions. Um, so she mm. says that she's committed adultery with over 100 men, mm. <laughs> including the town mayor recently. Bear in mind, she's a 74-year-old mm. widow. And, they, you know, the magistrates don't really know what to do. They do actually sort of look into this and then they decide that she's obviously not telling completely the truth. But then they do, they do think that she um, is a witch. And so she says things like the devil lives in her, and presses on her heart um, and on her throat and eventually she actually dies on trial but I, I, I don't know in, in her case whether she's trying to commit suicide by proxy which is mm. a very interesting case in the early modern period of in, in Lutheran territories in particular where people might commit murder, suicide murders 
um, in order to be killed because committing mm-hmm. suicide was the worst thing you could do. It would lead you to right. inter- eternal damnation. So in her sense, I think it was truly despair and maybe wanting to die. I mean, with other people, I think there's no way of ever categorically knowing why they're doing it. I mean, maybe they really thought they were a witch. Maybe it's also to do with the torture process. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe they think it's the easiest way out. Maybe mm-hmm. they hope that by confessing, you know, there'll be an end to torture. It's it's really hard to know. I think some people do embrace the mantle of the witch because it gives them some sort of power. So you've referenced a number of times that it well, it wasn't just uh, you know women who were who were being accused of of witchcraft, uh, but there were also men who were accused. Uh, maybe you already said this, but I and I think I remember from from the book or, or somewhere else. You know, something like three quarters were were women. Can you get into a bit like the differences between you know witch trials for men and women? Um, you know, and and sort of what what might I guess these differences and and comparing these these two tell us about the relationship between uh, the genders during this period. Yeah, well, I, I've just given um, lectures on gender and the body and also witches over the last two weeks, and I mean, it was kind of shit being a woman in this period. I mean, women yeah. were definitely seen as the weaker sex, um, religiously, socially, biologically as well. They were seen often as as failed males. Um, mm. So there was clearly um, a sense that um, which witchcraft was gendered. Um, I mean, as we know, we always think of the witch as a woman. Um, but yeah, as you said, you know, twenty five percent, twenty to twenty five percent were men. Um, that means you know around ten, ten to twelve thousand trials of men in the Holy Roman Empire. That is not an insignificant minority. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think it's really interesting to think about how the gendering of witchcraft plays out. Historians now agree that the uh, gender of the witch, or that the witch hunts were sex-related rather than sex-specific. There was a clear tendency to target women, and a lot, mm-hmm. of, a lot of the demonologies do think of the witch as female, but not always. The Malleus Maleficarum, I don't know if you've heard of it, The Hammer of the Witches, is a completely misogynistic text and very much um, associates witchcraft with women. But not all demonologies were so clear on the gender of the witch. Um, I mean, in terms of the relation between um, male and female witches or men and women more generally, I think what's interesting, and Robin Briggs has said this in his work on the Lorraine witch trials, is that there was often as much differences within the sex as between them. So um, I talk about this a bit in my book and in an article I wrote that when we use gender as a category of analysis, we can't always assume that there's differences. We can't always assume that there's an unequal weighted relationship, although there often is. I think it should be a question. Um, And as soon as you make gender the question as opposed to the answer, I think you get some really interesting analyses. And um, I was really interested in male witch trials as well. My favourite male witch trials, well, there's quite a few actually, but I have a few where they focus on stolen manhood, which is not a euphemism. They really thought their penis had been stolen. Um, and then they accuse a woman of, of doing this. And this is, I mean, this is fascinating for so many reasons because they go on trial publicly to talk about their stolen manhood and how this is a case of witchcraft. Obviously, in some ways, they're trying to defend their honour by making it an external problem as opposed to their problem. But still the fact that, you know, they're, they're so clearly concerned, anxious, fearful, 
angry about this, that they're willing to go publicly on trial to accuse someone of doing that. Um, and I think the stolen manhood cases are particularly interesting because they also show the fragility of masculine identity as well that it was not always easy to achieve patriarchal ideals. So this is a very patriarchal society. Um, patriarchy is the ideal. But I think it's um, easy to assume that, you know, all men wanted to subjugate to all women. I think it's much more complex than that. And I think a lot of men struggled with achieving the ideal of their sex. Um, mm. And so these cases are really interesting in terms of that. But there's certainly more leniency for men. Um I have one case where it's a 20-year-old man who um, confesses to being a witch and he says, you know, 20 women came into his cell and danced. And they're like, well, how's that plausible because 20 people can't fit into this cell? <laughs> so, <laughs> And then they suggest to him that maybe he's just having a beer dream, you know, that he's drunk. Um, and I think the point is that they were willing to give him leniency because he was a man and also because he was young. So you do see different expectations based on gender, but also age, social mm. status. Um, and the other thing about um, men and women is that women were much more likely to resist an identity of witchcraft or the charge of witchcraft if they were married and if they had mm. the protection of a man. Um, and, and so what we do see are um, husbands often coming to the defence of their wives and if this was the case, the woman was much more likely to be released. If they were mm. a single woman without male protection, they were much more likely to be condemned. So that's an interesting comparison. Um, so it shows how the gendering works in that way. And then also um, the physicality of men and women on trial, I think, differed. So women were expected to cry on trial. They had to mm. shed a tear. If they didn't cry, it meant that their heart was cold um, and that they were in the clutches of the devil. Stubbornness, unfortunately for these people on trial, was also seen as a demonic or devilish vice. So you mm. had to kind of obviously maintain your innocence, but you couldn't be seen as too stubborn because then you looked like you were in the hands of the devil. Um, men, it's interesting, their physicality is not commented on as much. Um, I mean, obviously, the cases of sta stolen manhood notwithstanding, but there's not necessarily a discussion of whether they can cry or not cry, whereas women, they, that's always talked about. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. And I guess something I'm interested in mm. is, like, sort of what, what this can tell us about life more generally, you know, kind of in, uh, you know, these these states that comprised or are now comprised Germany, um, you know, during that period, you know, what... What can these persecutions tell us about general attitudes towards, uh, I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about towards towards women, but, you know, towards also, you know, religion, towards community, um, family, you know, what can we, I guess, glean about, uh, I know that, of course, your research focuses on the self, but can you speak at all to um, what it tells us about uh, conceptions of sort of the, the community or, 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 or more, more generally during this period? Yeah, well, I think what's interesting is that the self, if you wanted to call it that, um, you know, however that's termed, was really understood within people's network of relations. We're not mm. thinking of kind of autonomous subjects, you know, um, necessarily being particularly introspective, but the fact that someone's identity was really made up of, of community relations, how people mm. thought of them, 
Um, it's a very relational sense of self um, with mm. God, you know, their relationship with God, with their family, with their community. And I think what we really see in witch trials is um, the importance of community embeddedness. So people being a bad neighbour was really the real reason that they were accused of witchcraft. Right. Um, you know, it was, you know, did you give your neighbour salt when they asked for it? Um, you know, were you there when their child was ill? Um, mm. So one of the cases I've looked at, you know, she's accused of um, breathing on children in a malicious way. I mean, this is where it's all about emotions, because obviously the physical act of breathing, everyone does. But it's the fact that she um, had a malicious intent behind it because she didn't mm. sympathise in the way that others did when her neighbour's child was ill. So it really, what these trials are interesting, I mean, you know, I, I initially, I guess, wanted to read about sex with the devil and, you know, what do they do at the Sabbath? And I didn't really see that. But what you do see in these trials are community relations. I mean, these are really excellent sources for understanding how people lived among one another. Um, mm. And these are deeply embedded communities um, with high expectations of neighbours. Um, you know, particularly, I think this is why a lot of uh, accusations are made against women because these cases occur in um, the realm of caring for the sick, caring for children, um, caring within the household, um, and a failure of that or neglect mm. of that. Um, and you see the importance of reputation. I was trying to explain this also to my students. I mean, Hall was the worst, well, which I guess was the worst slander, but Hall was the most common um, a negative slander made against women because it was all about sexual chastity um, mm -hmm. um, as a sign of honour for women in this period. But what I tried to explain in the early modern period, reputation really matters. Um, you know, if you're a good neighbour, if you've got a reputation as a witch, I mean, that often took years and years and years to develop and turn into a, a formal accusation. But your reputation was a matter of life and death. You know, if you're a man... If you have a good reputation, that means you have good standing. People want to do business with you. If you have a bad reputation, no one wants to do business with you. Um, and, you you know, you could die in poverty. So mm. reputation really mattered. Um, and actually, yes, you do see the sense of self as very much linked with how people thought of each other and how people interacted with each other. So what you see in these trials that I've looked at are loads of witness testimonies as well. Um, and that's how they get a sense of the self, mm. you know, not just from the person on trial who's accused, but what everyone thinks of them as well. And now you, you referred to um, a few different sort of specific examples and, you know, some of your kind of favorite, uh, I guess, trials. Um, but are, are there any other uh, kind of specific uh, examples that you that you want to talk about or that you that you think might be really interesting uh, to people? I mean, I probably have talked about all my favourite ones um, so okay. far. I mean, there is one which I think is really fascinating, which I've talked uh, about in my book, which is um, a case of the widow of the town mayor in a mm. small town in, in this territory. And um, she's accused and imprisoned for 596 days. Mm. Um, and so she's a widow. She's got lots of children. She's quite old by this point. And she maintains her innocence throughout and is eventually set free. But I think, and this trial is really interesting because you get a first-person testimony from her, which is quite unusual, where she explains the torture to which she, she is subjected. 
and it's hard reading as you said you know this can seem quite abstract but you know when you read that you really remember these are real people um, Mm. in awful situations but I just think it's incredible to read her um, her sense of innocence for that long and she is eventually set free but Mm. she has got powerful backing so her son and son-in-law um, come to her defence. Again, this is a man coming um, to the defence of a woman um, and she is able to employ a lawyer because they're, they're rich. But um, still, I think it's just an incredible trial to see, just to kind of read about the torture that's being inflicted upon them, but also about this ability to withstand it as well. I have one sort of last question about your research and this work um, before then I have a, a couple of final questions to kind of maybe wrap wrap things up, especially for listeners of this podcast who are, you know, kind of interested in, in the Germany of, of the present. Why is it still, maybe why is it important to, or, or what is the purpose of, of still thinking about this period um, for, yeah, from the present? I mean, I think if you zoom out, I think what's interesting is to think about the power an agency of emotions to do things in the world you Mm. know it's very easy to be like oh everyone was really stupid and superstitious but this is also the period of the scientific revolution it's the age of the reformations i mean these are not all completely ignorant deluded people you know kings and queens believed in witches the one of the greatest political theorists of the time also wrote a demonology um, and also espoused, ironically, religious toleration. I mean, you know, this is this is the the thing. I mean, this is what everyone, from the most learned to the most unlearned people, were preoccupied by. This was just um, an all-consuming phenomenon, that of mm-hmm. witches. And I think, yeah, but I think if you zoom out, I think what's interesting because this is relevant to lots of different things. Why people go to war you know, why people persecute other people in other ways is is this the power of emotions to do things, um, to affect historical change. And what I try and say is that you cannot understand the witch craze if you don't take seriously the power of fear, um, the historical power of fantasy as well. Um, and this is not just a complete one-off episode, but we need to understand how emotions make people do things and you need to understand that to understand human action and therefore why historical change occurs so i think it's more a call to arms to take that seriously you know we can't just only think about structures we need to think about what motivates individual people to do certain things and i think the witch trials is a really interesting lens onto doing that yeah. Okay. That's that's great. Yeah. No. That's that's uh, that's really interesting. So to to wrap things up, I guess I I have uh, yeah a couple couple of questions. One of which is maybe uh, in a bit of a different direction, but I'm I'm kind of in, and you I guess alluded to this at the beginning when you talked about how you know everybody has this kind of image of a of a witch. You know, sort of a woman, maybe an old older woman. Um, and you know there is such like a lasting contemporary interest and sort of pop culture fascination with witches. Um, you know, it was just Halloween. I watched, uh, you know, Hocus Pocus 2 with my boyfriend. Um, Is it good? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's... I need to watch it. It's it's good, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of silly fun. It's, uh, you know, not the most amazing movie in the world, but I don't think it's intended to, <laughs> to be so either. Um, I guess I'm wondering, you know, as someone who, you know, takes sort of this this history very seriously and and has spent so much time researching this like what what do you make of this kind of irreverent uh kind of take on witches that i think most people have you know is this kind of like 
tame fun, you know, or, you know, is it making light of, you know, a, a really tragic period in history? You know, how, how do you sort of generally uh, feel about this? Yeah, I mean, I can see why um, it might be seen as um, making light of this tragic period. I mean, I personally, I don't necessarily know if it's tame fun either, but I think it's really fascinating that there mm -hmm. is such a contemporary interest in the witch right now. Um, I think that tells us a lot about our current climate as well. I mean, when you're mm -hmm. asking me why is this relevant, this is relevant because people still believe in witches. People still practice witchcraft. I mean, it's not just mm -hmm. a complete aberration in, you know, human history. I think the supernatural has got such an enduring power. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you take religion seriously, you also have to take the supernatural seriously. But um, no, I think what's really interesting is is why the witch is having such a moment at at, at the present. I mean, you know, when I when I first started my PhD, which was a while ago, you know, people be like with the joke and say, oh, are you a witch? Ha ha ha. I don't think people make that joke anymore because, you know, a lot more people are saying I'm a witch. I mm -hmm. practice witchcraft. I read tarot. You know, I I am interested in my star signs. I think there's been a real shift in um, sort of the acceptance of more mm. esoteric beliefs. Um, I don't know if you're on TikTok. I'm too old to be on TikTok. But <laughs> there's this phenomenon called witch talk, which, um, okay. you know, are small uh, witchy videos on TikTok. And I'm going to just Google it because um, every time I check, there are more and more... Um, uh, 33.8 billion views 33.8 billion views of witch talk i mean that is huge that yeah. is so huge and most journalist inquiries i get now are about witch talk um really? yeah so um and this is kind of partly to do with um, an interest in my new work but i do think it's interesting why the witch has got such cultural resonance now i mean obviously some of it's to do with pop culture but pop culture is also a reflection of people's interests so um, I think some of it's to do with political activism. Um, I think some of it's to do with uh, people in the wake of the Me Too movement about, you know, reclaiming um, sort of this feminist identity, fighting back against patriarchy. There were, you know, when Trump was in power, there were anti-Trump demonstrations with people holding placards saying, you know, we're the granddaughters of the, of, you know, which is kind of fight, we're going to hex, uh, hex Trump and all that kind of stuff. I think there's um, a real sense of it being linked with counterculture. Um, I do think we see generally these esoteric movements gain popularity in more conservative times, mm. um, which I think we've been living through. So, um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I, I'm neutral about whether it's tame fun or whether it's, you know, kind of making light of things. I just think it's really interesting <laughs> that it's yeah. so um, speaking to so many people at the moment um, and that there's so, so much interest in the witches. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not on TikTok. I was on TikTok earlier in the pandemic and then, you know, when I had sort of nothing to do. And then now, now I've sort of stopped for for, uh, for the past uh, year or so. But uh, I'm, I'm interested now in sort of looking at what is on witch talk. Very curious 
we've we've talked mostly about your 2018 book, um, but you have a book forthcoming also with Cambridge University Press called The History of Witches in Their Own Words. Um, so just to you know wrap things up here, uh, can you just tell can you tell me a bit about this project uh, and also maybe anything else you kind of want to to plug? You know, if people want to learn more about what you're working on, what you're up to. Um, yeah, well, so this um, this is a slightly uh, unusual project for me because I'm early modernist um, and therefore have, you know, worked with the 16th and 17th century trial records. And this kind of came about slightly during lockdown. Um, and I've always been interested in self-narratives as a historical source. And I, you know, well, like everyone was stuck at home, couldn't go to any archives. And... Um, just before the pandemic, I'd met um, some trustees of a archive that belonged to a witch who lived in Sussex. Um, and through them, I then was introduced to other practicing witches, and I ended up doing oral histories with practicing witches. So mm. I have about 40 history, oral histories with practicing witches, and it is mm. really fascinating. Really mm-hmm. interesting for me methodologically as an early modernist to now be finally <laughs> talking to alive people. Um, and so this book is to think about what witchcraft means in an age not of persecution um, to those who identify as a witch. And so um, a lot of it is, um, again, like an idiom. I think, why is witchcraft interesting? Well, witchcraft tells you about so many different facets of the world. They, they talk about belief, religion, sex and sexuality, gender, emotions, selfhood, politics, um, environment, a lot about the environment, age, generational change, um, and contemporary culture. So these interviews are kind of meant to be partly about why people um, identify as a witch or practice witchcraft, but also as a lens into thinking more broadly about you know what it means to be to be a human and to um, identify um, in a particular way. I mean, you could probably talk about anything in that sense. Um, but I just think it's really, um, it's really fascinating. It tells us about subcultures, about belonging as well as not belonging. Why do people turn to witchcraft? I think it's also about thinking with the supernatural. So um, again, I think we like to think of ourselves as living in this very secular, rationalist world, whatever that means. Um, and I think it's interesting to um, give due importance to how people think about external forces in the world as well. Um, and again, how that then shapes people's sense of self, about their body, about their emotions, about community. So in a way, it's about asking very similar questions to mm-hmm. what I asked of my past people, but all in a completely different lens. Um, and uh, it's really interesting having these you know real interviews with people and you see a lot of generational uh, differences as well I think what's interesting about witch talk and witches of Instagram which are kind of like sexy witches (laughs) is that it kind of democratizes witchcraft you know you can learn how to do a spell in a 30 second video whereas Wicca um, you know is usually based on initiation after a year and a day so mm. it takes a long time to become a witch. So I think it's also interesting to see these these tensions within the witchcraft community, but also, um, uh, you know, how, how it's shifting with age mm. and, and social media. 
Yeah. Well, that all sounds really, really fascinating. Yeah. I, well, I'm excited to, <laughs> to sort of yeah read about these contemporary witches. Um, yeah, because I have noticed that also, you know, even among sort of my friends or people around me, you know, maybe they're not sort of taking it as seriously as these 40 witches who you, you interviewed for this project. But I do feel people are casually kind of claiming, even if sort of half jokingly, but maybe not so, so half jokingly, but yeah, sort of claiming this identity uh, of a witch. That's really interesting. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Laura Kunin for, uh, for this yeah wonderful conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for um, asking me such great questions. Thanks again to Dr. Kunin for that quite fascinating interview. I found um, a lot of dots being connected, not only in regards to like the European context, but also just like je- like culture and pop culture generally and the way we use this fascination with the figure of the witch. And, you know, my immediate thought went to... Uh, I mean, after Witch Talk, of course, which is a huge deal. Wait, are you familiar with Witch Talk? Are you? Oh, of course. That's that stuff like trickles into Twitter. Oh, okay. Because people were like hexing <laughs> Trump. Oh. Okay. You know, like they they were trying to to do something there mm. with the moon. Okay. And um, I'm not sure if they succeeded, but then I. <laughs> Um, I also thought about like the the tweet that Trump sent out where he was calling the the trial uh, his impeachment trial like a witch hunt with massive conflicts of interest, and it just really got me thinking about yeah the figure of the witch and what that means to like be an outcast mm-hmm. um, in society and just this whole conversation about that at the core. It was about being a good neighbor mm-hmm. and being like a caring woman, essentially, and like really like playing your role as the like responsible member of a community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just found that fascinating. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think it's really, really interesting. And like, I think yeah, the part that I found most interesting is sort of her talking about how you know, prior to these, these trials, this is like the first time that a lot of these people really had the opportunity to, or who were, or the the first time they were sort of forced to like reckon with like, yeah, what it means to be like a good person and like what it means yeah. to be. Yeah. Cause previously, you know, you were like, I mean, I cannot imagine what it was like to live in this period just as a normal, normal person. Uh, just logistics. Let alone, exactly. <laughs> like your whole life is just filled with logistics. How do I get my yeah. bread? I don't know. Anyway, but, but yeah, like, so that people were not, you know, nowadays it's just like, we're all so sort of introspective and we're always sort of like thinking about, or maybe we're not, maybe we're just posting about it on Twitter, but at least there's a sort of like culture of kind of yeah, reflecting. Go to and therapy. Turning. Improve your. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, like the fact that these trials were often the first time where people were asked, like, okay, so like, why are you not a witch? Which means, like, so why are you a good person? Um, is yeah, really kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like every society has to have like a manner of controlling what is accepted and what is not, mm-hmm. and so to be able to have like recourse against fellow citizens 
if they seem to not be interested enough in your child or like, Mm -hmm. you know, in this, in this, um, there wasn't like the nuclear family in the same sense. So it's like everybody had to play their part. And if they didn't, like, what do you do? Well, I mean, just on, on that subject, like, I mean, don't, I mean, I know that, you know, it's, it's kind of iffy to like connect, like draw straight lines of connection from like that period with like present day and like, obviously, you know, the, yeah, a lot has changed in the past 400 years. And it's compelling on its own terms. Like that has to be said, like when you're just focusing on, I mean, even the fact that they have these records and that you're able to kind of delve into like the minutia of these trials is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of the present. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's kind of impossible to like draw a straight line of connection, but I mean, I think it, it still is interesting to like then also reflect on the way that, yeah, people who are considered kind of like to be outside of normalcy or, or whatever are, yeah, treated today, not just in Germany, but like around the world. But I mean, I think in, in, in Germany, I think there is this kind of, uh, I mean, well, well, one of the first things that I noticed when I moved to Germany, and I think this is kind of like a trope of like people who moved to Germany noticing this is like Germans like to tell you when you're doing something wrong or, or, or when they you're doing something like sort of differently from how they would maybe do it. And I mean, I'm not saying this is a necessarily like specifically German trait, um, but I do think it's like interesting that there there persists this kind of, uh, yeah, desire to yeah keep this kind of order and control and uh yeah keep people in line a little bit uh whatever form that maybe takes in in a particular given time yeah i found it also like the distilled concept of understanding the power of emotions Mm -hmm. to like how that motivates people um to act what that made me think of like this like um I think Dr. Kareen said, like, the power of fear and fantasy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It made me think of the last episode about um, the Berlin elections that we did and the whole, like, debate between the um, the Spitzenkandidaten of the various parties felt like it was tied to this undercurrent of fear about the car and about, like, the freedom of the car, which is like connects back to our episode with um Conrad Kunze. Yeah. And it just made me think like politically what we do with fear or like how that translates into policies. Yeah, and I mean yeah, and and emotions, like this sort of like emotional attachment to yeah, the automobile. It's like so bizarre, but yeah, she she says like the reason why sort of these looking at these witch trials matters today is yeah because it it helps us understand the ability of emotions to do things in the world and it's like yeah how else can you really explain this irrational like connection that people have with cars here um or yeah in lots of places but as as we saw in the last election uh, particularly here and also like the kind of identity formation of like the car owner i know we're like really going for it at the moment no i think it's good no but i mean i think this is great because like yeah like she did say like yeah sort of emotions and and fear like these are really these kind of powerful powerful things and like yeah you can of course 
then apply that to like any uh on some level it's like the the person who's concerned about um not being able to drive their car what they're really concerned of is like being the bad neighbor who's still driving their car and being shamed by their like community because they on some level understand that like the greater good has to like acknowledge climate change just you know reflecting on the the recent election here in berlin and like sort of the uh topics during the debates like and and this idea of of fear and like the power of of fear to uh propel sort of politics and uh our actions um i mean i think that also like and again okay i feel like i'm saying this with every single point that i'm making of course it's not just in germany like i think you could also apply the same kind of thing to a lot of things in american politics but this fear of like the other the outsider i mean not so much of like what uh was driving this kind of ridiculous discourse after new year's about like yeah the fireworks and stuff and i mean that's what's what drives so much of like xenophobia and i mean it's yeah it's all kind of rooted in this this fear and and also misinterpretation yeah. of reality because yeah. i think like there is this fantastical element to it where you're overemphasizing certain aspects of like societal transformation and fixating on them and just kind of losing the grip on reality yeah. right like um so there i really do see the connection of like how like different jurisdictions would come up with a different interpretation of like what is a witch mm -hmm. right and like how it then um kicks off like a hunt mm -hmm. in the sense of like the, the witch craze right and like how that like escalates and it's like then once you go once you take the lens and you and you like expand upon it do you know what i'm trying to say like like yeah i mean that, that was really interesting too like that um there was no kind of set definition of the witch and like the the idea of who yeah. is a witch was always sort of up for debate and so then, then you can kind of assign the label witch to whatever you want whatever part of society or or, or makes you uncomfortable or that uh yeah and then and then that is going to yeah propel this yeah witch hunt um it just like di it starts dictating like the discourse at large when what really started was like a neighborly dispute right yeah right so it's like like the pro the interpersonal problems in a, within a community then become like explosive and outsized yeah i guess it's yeah like instead of just not having uh cars on a small stretch of a street in berlin <laughs> it suddenly becomes oh my god they want to take away all of our cars and we're or like this whole ridiculous thing about the 15 minute city like oh in god. the uk and also in canada too like some people are going just yeah it's ridiculous um but no i mean i do think it's really interesting like i know it seems ridiculous that we're just kind of like rambling on about all these different things and being like oh yeah it connects to the witch but i mean i feel like it it kind of does like it like you can really draw yeah. these kinds of connections and i mean it it's all just like a very kind of human thing about like our fears or emotions um and the ties that bind us well that's a great way to end it i think um there, yeah do you have any further reflections i think we just have to go we just have to go to, to 
we can't reflect anymore. We just have to go participate next year. Okay, that's going to be Ausflug number 100. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thanks so much uh, for listening. Thanks, everyone. We will be back again shortly. Soon. Okay. Catch you then. Tschüss. Tschüss.